You're listening to Arrowhead Radio. Do my prejudices influence communication of the gospel? What is my position as a Christian on mission? Is Christianity compatible with other religious expression? Is evangelism simply white colonization? Do all expressions of faith lead to the same ultimate outcome? We can boldly face the relativism that is influencing missions and overtaking the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us as we discuss complex issues facing the local church as it serves Christ in obedience to the Great Commission. This is Mission of the Nations with host Grant Fawcett. This is the second episode that we're recording um, during our time of self-isolation, unable to have guests down to the Arrowhead studio to record new podcasts. So we are sharing with you at this time the recorded sessions from the Arrowhead Circle Summit that took place last October. Uh, This session is uh, Andrew Arden as he looks from a pastoral perspective at the issues of syncretism and how that is considered scripturally uh, from God's Word. So hopefully you'll be challenged and edified and blessed by this uh, seminar. Good morning, everyone. Let's take our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44 this morning. Forty-fourth chapter of the book of Isaiah. So you're turning there. I want to tell you about something that happened to me last few months. It's a reoccurring event. Happens occasionally, not often, and at random. I was driving down Main Street, minding my own business, when I was made aware again of syncretism. It was on display for me, for my own eyes, just driving, minding my own business. There in front of me was a bumper, a vehicle. And on that bumper happened to be a sticker. On that sticker was the word coexist. Perhaps you've seen that sticker and how that font is of that word coexist has all these different religious and some even not religious symbols. The the C is this crescent of Islam. The T is us, the the Christian faith, the cross. Uh, all, All these religions put together on one sticker. Perhaps what people mean by that is just we should love our neighbors and respect that other people have different religions. But I think that sticker communicates more than that. That religions should see each other as valued options. Just another path to God. And that is syncretism. I like the definition of syncretism Uh, that I I found in researching for this talk, that this author said it's wise to limit the scope of syncretism to illegitimate mingling of irreconcilable elements. 
That, that syncretism is the illegitimate mingling of irreconcilable elements. And that's what we're going to talk about today, what we have been talking about today. Syncretism, in the form we're talking about mostly, I believe to be religious syncretism. You, you could broadly define syncretism as just like trying to make two systems or thoughts uh, fit together that don't. You're trying to sync them, like an iPod. The syncing, syncretism, that, that, that mingling. And, and this isn't just a Christian event. I think we're seeing syncretism more and more, and even religious syncretism, uh, not just in the church, but even in culture. Now, even a, a good example for us of what we see as syncretism today even happens in the school system. Uh, I remember back when I was young, going to school, and you would learn about different cultures. You would learn about different belief systems. But now it's fairly common practice uh, that a religious group or a different culture may actually come into the school and lead the students in some sort of ceremony that for sure is cultural and often religious in nature. Now, we might get defensive and say, well, why can't Christians do that too? That still does happen in some school contexts. They sing um, in locally some Atlantic Canadian elementary schools, Christian hymns. Um, sometimes kids are still giving Gideon's Bibles. It, it's rare, for sure. I think that freedom is going away. But we're seeing all of these freedoms mixed together now. It's syncretism. What, what does the Bible say to coexistingers? Uh, what does it say to the thought that, well, there are many pathways to God, or all religions are just equally legitimate? The scriptures do speak to this. I think it's really the heart of God's comfort for his people in Isaiah 44. So let me read this passage for us today. Isaiah 44. This is the Lord speaking. But now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you, from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowering streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? 
Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man and with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. For you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see. And their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment, to say, half of it I burned in the fire, and I also break bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O the depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, um, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. 
and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the exclusivity of the faith that's been delivered to us, God. We thank you that you alone are God. Give us hearts to comprehend, eyes to see, ears to hear of your greatness in this hour. And God, may we not be ashamed of the gospel of peace to all nations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the risen and almighty God. Amen. Israel's in quite a pickle at this time in their history. If you were to look in the first five chapters of Isaiah, this this nation has abandoned their God. They are filled with all kinds of sin and all kinds of idolatry which is just one of the forms of sin they were committing. God, in chapter 6 of this book, raises up Isaiah to be his prophet, to speak to this nation, and other nations too, for a while. It's a message of judgment. He warns them, because you have sinned against your God, you need to be disciplined. Exile happens. And then what happens is actually the chapters we're in now. Even though discipline has come, God promises that he will not abandon his people. And he's calling them back to himself. And in in God doing this, in in this chapter, he's really speaking into their worldview, speaking into their idolatry, into their syncretism. That they have collected all these idols, that they've made false gods for themselves. And, And he's basically telling them that this is why this cannot be. This is why... I am exclusive. That, that Israel, I've chosen you, and so you must follow me in the way I prescribe. And there, there is only one way. So we are going to consider Israel's context for ourselves today and how it's helpful to realize that Christianity is exclusive. Now, I'm going to go off the fair assumption that most of us believe that. Uh, m- most of us here, if we're probably interested in this conference, are Christians. Um, probably none of us, I'm guessing, I wouldn't bet $50 on the fact that we just randomly strolled into the middle of Cumberland Bay one day and didn't realize there was a conference going on. We're interested in the topic probably because we care about serving the Lord. So we probably all would say, oh yeah, Christianity is exclusive. Like, yeah, there, there's no saving truth in Hinduism. But Why? And we can't just say, well, because. Um, I mean, that, that answer just doesn't hold up um, at all. Uh, we are living in a culture more and more uh, that is post-Christian, that, that, that has moved on from just this understanding, oh, yeah, Christianity is exclusive. In fact, we're moving more in towards, well, how could you be so arrogant and rude to claim your religion is the only way? And we, we have to have an answer for this. And, and God speaks as a loving father over his people when he calls them away from syncretism. 
Uh, it's interesting. I mean, other times he speaks bluntly. And even in this loving speech, he, he rather speaks mockingly and sarcastically of, of even what's going on with false religion. It's, it's quite interesting. But, but, but why? why? Why does God care about his ex- exclusivity? Why is syncretism garbage? And why does God say that in this passage? We're going to consider three things. The first one is that syncretism is impossible, which is another way of saying Christianity is exclusive. Syncretism is impossible because of God's nature. Syncretism is impossible just because of who God is. This is the first eight verses of this passage where God is really just giving self-testimony. He's saying, this is who I am. And he even speaks of Israel and who they are. He says to his sons and his daughters, this is who you are, my people. And that even shows us of his love and care for ourselves. He, in verses 1 and 2, he reminds Jacob, Israel, I have chosen you. I, I, I made you, I formed you in the womb, and I will help you. I, I will recreate you because I first created you. Israel's origin is, is beautiful. God tells them exactly why they are his people. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. It wasn't that you were a great nation, Israel. You were actually the most pathetic, is what Moses is telling them there. But it is because the Lord loves you. That's why. Why does God love his people? Because God loves his people. And is keeping that oath that he swore to your fathers. That covenantal language that we talked about. God cares about treaties, about covenants. That he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God reminds them, Israel, I love you. I've formed you and I've made a covenant with you and I'm sticking with you. He even calls Israel there Jeshurun, which is a name we don't hear often of Israel. It means upright ones. He's saying, you are holy ones. You are upright. You are mine. It may even be a pet name, a poetic name that he has for his people. God creates. That is his nature. But God also revives and sustains. That's verses 3 through 5. I will pour out water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Even it goes on that they will say to each other in verse 5, I am the Lord's, I I am am called by Jacob. And another will actually write on his hand, almost like a tattoo, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. That, that, That God is going to make sure his people survive and thrive. That God is going to make sure his people love him. That God is going to sustain the ministry. That God, that Jesus, will build his church on that rock. And the gates of hell cannot, will not, prevail against it. Uh, one hope we have all as Christian workers, as those who love the Lord, that, that syncretism will erode and God will win 
is because of his abundant pouring out uh, of the Spirit on his people and his instruction and love for them. God revives and sustains. God creates. But also in the nature and character of God we see in these verses, God specifically claims he is the only God. God says it plainly. I'm your only option. No one else there is legitimate. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, uh, the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me there is no God. That's pretty clear. He even calls out, you know, anybody out there? Who's like me? Let him declare. I'm listening, but I don't hear anybody. Verse 8, is there a God besides me? No, there, there is no rock. I, I know not any. God knows everything. And he's saying, I don't know any other God out there. God himself claims to be the only God. There are times we see in the Old Testament and the New other religions trying to replicate what God does. And it always fails. We see with Moses when he goes to bring the people out of Egypt, speaks to Pharaoh, brings the plagues, begs God says, let my people go. Plagues happen. And for a while, there are magicians there copying the plagues, doing some sort of artificial, cheap trick is being conjured up to replicate what God's doing. But that only lasts for a while. <coughs> when Elijah is there on Mount Carmel, you know, he, he stands up against all these prophets of Baal who are there begging Baal to come and to pour out his power to make fire happen on the sacrifice. They even go to cutting themselves, screaming for him to come. And no fire is lit that day by that God. Elijah actually mocks them. Has he gone to the bathroom? Is he too busy? Did he fall asleep? Where is your God? He's not there. Then Elijah goes, even soaks the whole thing with lots of water. And God shows up and displays his glory and burns it to a crisp. Because he's the only God. And that's exactly what he says about himself. There is none like him. So, if syncretism is true, if there are other legitimate options to God, if there are other gods out there that do exist, this God is a liar. And you cannot trust his word. If syncretism is true, this Bible is illegitimate and garbage. And we have no hope. God cannot lie. It says that in Titus. He is always the one who speaks truth. And this is even clear. God is saying this in a scriptural kind of way. Thus says the Lord. Verse 2. God, to be God, cannot share his glory. He would no longer be God. If I today were to say to you, I think each and every one of you should dedicate your life to me, Andrew Arden. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give me your money. Go for my cause. Oh, it's laughable, right? It is, because 
you all know, or really should know, I am not that special. And to hear another human talk like that, we just know they're full of themselves. They're selfish. They're conceited. But that's exactly how God talks about himself, isn't it, in the scripture? He tells us, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your universe needs to be about me. It's interesting in the scriptures, God is actually most concerned for love of himself rather than love of anything else or anyone else in the world. Yes, he loves us, but so that his love will come back to him, so that we will worship him. How is he not the most self-centered being in the universe? How is he not a tyrant? Because if God is true, if God is who he claims he is, he has to do that. For God to say, I am the rock, I am the creator, I am the only hope. But here's another God that's equally just as good. He's just stripped away all of his claims. If he says, I'm your only hope, but there's lots of other options out there, well then there's no longer any hope. For God to give his glory and his authority and his worship to any other being, they become God and not him. He is the only option. And that is his concern. And so we have to display that. We have to say, when we are asked, do you really believe that if people do not believe in Jesus and what he did to save them, they will spend eternity in hell? And we have to say, humbly, yes. We cannot pause there. For for that is what the Bible says. We are a testimony of the truth of God. And when we fall into syncretism, we abandon faithfulness to our Lord. We also are our testimony, though, not just of God's truth, but his beauty and his salvation. In verse 8, it is interesting, when God is speaking of himself, he actually calls his people, he calls Israel to be a witness. He, he says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare it? And you are my witnesses. You know there is only one God. And I expect you to display it, I think is what God is saying there. But also intermingled with that is fear not. Even our dispositions give testimony that God is our only hope and we rest in that hope. Even in just the the pattern and the lifestyle that we don't freak out when everything goes crazy. In a, a week's time or less, you know, when we have a new government, no matter what political party it is or isn't, or majority or minority, we don't need to freak out. Because God appoints kings and he brings them down. And he is in control. We should be the calmest people in the world. And that displays that God is the only option. It's a really interesting illustration of this. And I actually have to preface a little bit and explain a term in this illustration. So this is going two steps deep. So so try and track with me. Uh, I'm going to, and this is really helpful, I think, in two ways. I'm going to reference catechisms in this illustration. Somebody 
references to another person in this, cat, in this illustration of the shorter catechism. And not all Christians today know what a catechism is. And some people find them not so helpful. I remember a few years ago on, on Facebook, I actually had taken some questions of a catechism. And all catechisms are, are a historic way that churches in different denominations have taught the faith, usually to their children. And it's in question and answer format, just questions and answers. Most people today associate um, catechisms with the Catholic Church. Right, I see some heads nodding. That's where we go. If we say catechisms are Catholic, we actually, it's not historically accurate, but that's, that's a sidetrack. They're, they're across the board. Baptists have used catechisms for years. Um, but when I, I was posting these questions, now I, I would post a question, you know, who is God on Facebook? And just, it was interesting to see what the answers were. I was trying to start conversations, uh, but I had a missionary reach out to me privately and say, I'm not sure that I find this Con, that this a helpful practice because I'm ministering in a very Catholic context. So I just wouldn't do that because it is so tied up in that nature of Catholicism. I respect that. And I don't think that guy should have uh, in his context. That is him doing good contextualization. And even for him, he could have given the appearance of syncretism. But I do think catechisms have their place uh, appropriately. We use them in, in family worship. If you ask our oldest two kids, what is your only hope in life and death? If they have a decent memory, they'll tell you that we are not our own, but belong to God. You can't ask our third child that because it doesn't talk yet. So, so anyway, now that I've done all that preamble, here's the actual illustration I want to make. And it's just a really funny, I think, illustration about how Christians are so calm in a world falling apart, giving testimony that God is powerful and our only hope. This author said a long time ago that we have the following bit of a personal example from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. So that basically means, you know, there were riots in the streets. People were you know, breaking into storefronts and stealing televisions back 200 years ago. It was, it was a mess. <laughs> there was abuse. People were being shot. It says the streets were overrun by a dangerous crowd. This is a place you would avoid, but this army officer is there. He said one day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of mind, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed him, he actually turned back to look at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same. On observing the turning, the stranger at once came back to him, and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without preference, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Why? 
That was just what I was thinking of you, was the rejoinder. Almost like allied forces with their clicks and their call signs, identifying each other in the darkness of World War II. Are you friend or foe? These two Christians found each other first by just walking calmly through a street in the midst of chaos. God is our anchor. God is God. And that's why syncretism can't be possible. But secondly, syncretism is also impossible because other religions are empty. Other religion is empty. That's another reason why syncretism just doesn't make sense. That's all the way from verses 9 through 20. We see these idol makers and their idols and that they are nothing. All of these religions, all of this idolatry is just man-made, man-originated. And that's what all other religion is except for the Christian faith. That God came down and revealed himself. It is a divine origin. A God made by man cannot be supernatural. It can only be natural, for man is natural. And God points this out in, in so many ways. An iron worker actually gets exhausted and tired creating his God. He has to take breaks in, in forming the one he worships. A carpenter lives off most of the wood. He warms himself, he cooks, he is light. And even with the language of the passage, with the leftovers, he thinks, I'm going to make something that I'm going to worship and pray to, to deliver me. That I even make sure that tree grows so he can have his God someday. These gods depend on men for their very creation. They depend on nature. And God says towards verse 18... What is really going on there? They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes. Some debate about what that could be. Is it the idols shutting these people's eyes? Is it false gods, false religion? Is it Satan? Is it man himself? Is it, is it God? And I think scripturally it could be any of those options. We do see Satan as one who goes around deceiving. We see sometimes God blinding people's eyes in sin. We see their own self-deceit. We see that idols are liars in, in this passage. But, but God points out, this is blindness. Everyone involved here is blind except me. God, I am the one who sees what is really going on here. And this is all a lie. For us today to invite false religion and false religious practice into gospel work is to uphold that as saving faith for people, saving work, Jesus plus anything. Let's, let's uphold that as good at the same time. Be delivered, see clearly, but at the same time, shoving nails into their eyes. To do that, to, to hold up gods with God, to hold up other religious practice with the Christian faith, is to blind people by saying we're delivering them. Uh, we, we cannot add idolatry to. God, we just rip people's eyes out, spiritually. It is blinding and, and damaging. God shares no substance with any religion today. But we may pause. You may ask, well, what about the truth nuggets? That's what I call them. What, what about the fact that sometimes other religions do speak well? Or there are truths. You know, we have that coexist sticker, but also a poster I, I see 
um, sometimes from time to time, especially in a chaplaincy context, is that of the golden rule. It has the, the golden rule in the middle, but then all around it are all these quotes from the different religion stating some form of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's in our Bible. We, we, but other religions have other quotes that share similar thoughts. And we can't deny that. that. They do say those things. But here's the thing about religious truth. Even Jesus' statement is those truths aren't individualistic. Um, I'm trying to think of another word, but I can't think of it. Just the truth isn't little independent drops apart from each other. It's not that religions, and even false religions, is this bag of marbles, where some of the marbles in there are good marbles and some are bad marbles, and we can just take the good things and ignore the bad things. No, it's, it's in the framework of this whole bag that is opposed to God and running from him and running to some sort of salvation apart from faith alone and, and Christ alone. And therefore, we, we cannot endorse any of it. Because the whole system is flawed. Uh, broken clocks are right twice a day. Um, but it, it's never going to get you to where you need to go on time. Um, we need to have faith in Christ alone. The practice of syncretism is an abomination, God says in this chapter, not a mere mistake. It's serious. We do see an example, I think, in the New Testament of where missionaries could have practiced syncretism if they wanted to. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 14 for a few moments. Acts chapter 14. Here in Acts chapter 14, starting verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up, operate on your feet. He sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycotian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring good news. We bring gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. If Paul and Barnabas there in that chapter were syncretists, how that conversation may have gone was, oh, 
there's religious conversation going on here. They think we're Zeus and Hermes. Let's just adopt that so we can get Jesus in there as well. You know, okay, we are Zeus and Hermes, but let's also tell you about Jesus, another option for you to consider. Uh, One of the many ways. That's how a syncretist would talk there. But they rip their clothes. They beg these people to turn away from what is false (coughs) and follow truth, the only truth. Uh, Zeus and Hermes do not compete. They are not compatible with the Lord. Let's turn back to Isaiah 44 and consider the last point of today's talk. Isaiah 44, and we see in verses 21 and 28, or through 28, that syncretism is impossible because of the work of the gospel. Not only because of who God is and who those false gods aren't, their folly, their, their emptiness, their vainness, even in God's pointing of them, their stupidity of idolatry. But it's also in just how God saves, that it's our only hope. If you were to read, um, again, we won't do it for the sake of time, but 21 through 28, we have all this beautiful language. Maybe just the first two verses. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. Reflect on the fact that I am God and idolatry is false. And reflect on what I'm about to tell you. You're my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I'm never going to forget you. You're always on my mind. And, and, and this is how you're always on my mind. Not as complete screw-ups. You just worship other gods all the time that give you hearts to other things that don't love me the way you should. Israel, this is how I remember you. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Just like a little shot of bathroom sprites. It's there for a moment and gone. And in the absence of that dissolving, there's a pleasant mist. God does not remember our sins. He's removed them by the work of Jesus. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. It's beautiful. Remember what I've done and return to me. It's an invitation for us to even repent of our syncretism. I challenge you to reflect on that today. Is that your hope? Not in your strength, not even in your faithfulness to a religious system, Not in your thinking, well, I have it figured out more than other churches do and other missionaries and Christians. That's not your hope, your intelligence. Your your hope is in God and that he's redeemed you and loved you. Is that your only hope today? What Jesus has done. His work on the cross. The fact that he's raised from the dead and lives now for your life and pleads your cause to the Father. Challenge you, turn from your sins and turn to God. Call out to Him for salvation today. If you're not sure that's your only hope, if you just consider Him as one option among many, I'd love to explain the gospel, the good news of, of God being exclusive to you more. We can take the rest of the day, talk to Grant, uh, talk to the other speakers, the apprentices here, others. We would love to share the hope of the gospel with you. God loves his people and he provides for them. Right now in Israel's history, they're a spot that that things are crazy. They're away from Israel. They're away from Jerusalem. They're looking for their home. 
And things are a mess. Culture's different. There's Babylonian gods running all over the place. And they wonder how they should live there. But God promises, I have not forgotten you, and I'm going to bring you home. He actually, at the end of the chapter, says, I have a servant coming. His name's Cyrus. Nobody's really heard about him yet, but he's going to get you back home someday. God's saying, I've got this all figured out. And that's one really good thing for us to consider. When I think we see Canada becoming more syncretistic from where it used to be, when we see that all over the world, God's still getting us back home. And other religions aren't going to throw that off track at all. They can't. There is nothing lacking in the gospel, so why would we add to it? Galatians 1, 6-9, Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there actually is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's our only hope, and we have to stick to it. We, we, we can't say anything else, even if that means we speak out against a million different gods. They're not there. And our God is the only one who is. He is our hope. Syncretism is impossible, and Christianity is exclusive because of who God is, because of the emptiness of false religion, and because of the work of the gospel. Where else could we go? Thank you. This has been a broadcast of Arrowhead Radio, a ministry of Arrowhead Native Bible Center. Visit our website at arrowheadnbc.com for more information. Look for a new episode next week wherever you find your favorite podcasts.